Andre Leon Talley has been a fashion icon for decades. For years, he was a top advisor to Anna Wintour at Vogue, and before that, he worked closely with Diana Vreeland and Andy Warhol. But life has often been cruel to Andre. I remember once I ordered a beautiful canvas bag from Vogue, from the back pages, and it was a bag, it was a plumber's canvas bag. But you could send away for this plumber's bag. It took eight weeks to come, and I had printed on the plumber's bag the word junket, junket. If you look up the word, why it's that a, word? Huh? Because that's what appealed to me. It was a plumber's bag. It takes a plumber's junk, a junket. And I got the bag from the mailbox and opened it up and went down the street. And just walking down the street in Washington D.C. on a Saturday morning, these these two guys, they just saw me walking and they just came up and hit me in my face. But I was smart enough to run to a porch and ring a doorbell for a stranger's door to protect myself from being beaten up by these two guys. They obviously didn't understand what it was, so they just reached out and hit me. So it doesn't matter. You know, I just keep going when these things happen. And no matter what I did, my grandmother always gave me unconditional love. So, Andre is a black man from the South, the son of a domestic who somehow became an indispensable member of the elite global fashion community. He's a large black man, well over six feet tall, who made it in a world dominated by tiny white women. Recently, there was a fantastic documentary made about him called The Gospel According to Andre, and before it ran, he invited me to come and interview him at five of the screenings in Manhattan. They did it, it was so much fun, Andre came dressed up in these magnificent multicolored caftans designed especially for him by Dapper Dan. And at these events, all sorts of people stood up and asked him questions, including my 10-year-old son, Hendrix. So you don't know the trend for now. You look and look and look for it. You finally found, found it. But you feel like the trend is unfashionable. What do you do? I feel like the trend is unfashionable. What do I do? I simply go and wear what I think is fashionable. I make the choice and I decide it's right. What do you tell the people to do? Do what they think is right. Do what you feel. If you decide, if your daddy does not believe to wear shorts, I think you said your daughter said, why aren't you wearing shorts? And he must wear his jeans. You must dress the way you feel. And I always did it as a child. I grew up in my grandmother's house and my grandmother allowed me to be free. You must dress the way you feel. I think if you want to wear a bikini to work, you should wear one. As long you as you have a table. You wait, won't wait, 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 job. wait, 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 listen, listen. You should wear the bikini as long as you have a beautiful sable coat to cover it up with. It's fine. Andre is brilliant. He's deep. And he's learned a lot along the way. I tried to get him to talk about how he succeeded and what he did right and all that he's been through. He's been through a lot. I really love this conversation. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. It's Andre Leon Talley on Touré Show. Getting dressed is a matter of options that are based on the individual's life. And everyone can be well-dressed if they want to be because dressing is a code that expresses individuality. There is kind of a moral code to dressing, and I think that most people live up to a code as long as they are 
clean, decent, and whatever their choices are, you can respect them. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, wouldn't tell you to get dressed a certain way. I would say whatever you're wearing is of interest. Mm-hmm. It's a jeans shirt. It's an interesting jeans shirt. It's not just any old jeans shirt. Clearly, you chose it for the cut and the fit. Mm-hmm. It's not some old fly-by-night jeans shirt from Levi's or some mm-hmm. bullshit mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> and I just don't think that, uh, you know, the way the young people dress today is cool. However, I don't think that you need to... The only place where people are improperly dressed for me are in airports. When you get on an airplane... Mm. And you got some overfed person wearing their Hawaiian shorts from Hawaii and thongs and their T-shirts, Lacoste T-shirts. Now, I do think you can wear your jeans. You can wear flip-flops. You can wear flip-flops anywhere. They've got stylish ones for you, men and women. But I think that today the world dresses for comfort. Yes, and and function. And function and sexual awareness. People want to look hot and sexy. If you look going to stores, any fashionable store, they want to present hot and sexy, even athletic stores. A little too tacky? No, that's not tacky. It's Everyone wants to look sexy. Everyone hopes someone's going to look it up for some sex vibes. But I know that people <laughs> want to be dressed up to be sexy and hot. What, 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 what would you say to me, and not specifically me, mm-hmm. but just as a, as a man in general, yes. if he wants to dress better? What does he need to think about and be aware of? He needs to think about the quality of his shoes, first and foremost. Shoes, number one. Shoes, number one. What Uh, should he be wearing? He should be wearing a very important sleek, sleek brogue or a very important tie-up Oxford, very classic, very throwback. What about a sneaker-wearing man? A sneaker-wearing man is cool. A sneaker-wearing man can really find great fashion in sneakers. They've got stores with sneakers from Yeezy. They've got $2,000 sneakers. You run up in Gucci, you got to pay $2,000 for a high-top sneaker with a bridal bit on the heel. And that is cool. I have two pairs of them. <laughs> I wore them once. Because <laughs> I don't want to mess them up. Because I'll never get them again. <laughs> but a sneaker man has many choices. He can go online. He's got all kinds of options for sneaker wearing. And sneakers are cool because sneakers are now made in Napa leather. Mm-hmm. Comme de Garçon, they can be done by designer, Rafe Simmons, mm-hmm. Givenchy, all that brand stuff is cool. So you can wear sneakers. You wear sneakers with no socks, it's a good look. You can wear high top shoes with no socks. You can wear very expensive shoes with no socks. Most people are now into wearing no socks. Well, that was a big trend forever. And particularly with gay men, particularly with gay waspy men. And then it f- filtered over into the black culture. Gay Wasserman men used to wear no socks in the summer. Right. Their belts and slippers. But now you see that it's a very big trend. It's not just the trend for the Wasserman, man, but the gay culture loves no socks with very expensive calf benchmade shoes. So you got to have good shoes, sneakers or shoes. Sneakers or shoes. you got to have a good white shirt fitted to your body. you got to have a good clean white shirt. You have to have even a good sweater if you don't have a good jacket. you got to have a good button-down sweater. It'll be a little tight cashmere sweater. And you just got to have a good pair of trousers. They don't have to be denim. They could be just, you know, blue twilled. See, uh, part of what I like about your description is that you're talking about the items, and sometimes you are, and not just you specifically, but fashion folks in general, I think are too logo-obsessed. <laughs> and you didn't mention any brands there. I don't dress brands. But I do dress brands. <laughs> yes. I dress brands, but they don't look like brands. Mm. I go for the individual moments in fashion. I look for the thing that stands out that is not necessarily a logo. However, I will embrace Dapper Dan, and that's a brand. <laughs> you want to have it on your back. He's Dapper special. Dan. Yeah, he's special. And cool. 
But you don't want to have that brand logoed on your back, you know. However, oh, it's a big moment for people. Some people go to the store just to get the brand look, you yeah. know. Particularly Gucci. What do women in the world, what does the average woman need to do better in terms of getting dressed for an average day? I don't think she, she doesn't need to do much. She probably has to pay more attention to her hair and makeup than anything. I think most women are well-dressed today when you see people walking down the street. You, they don't have to wear stiletto heels to be well-dressed. They have to wear what makes them feel comfortable going to work. They can wear flats. They're very in now. They, they have to have a certain kind of a handbag, purposeful handbags. They have to carry their totes, their laptops, their devices. Preferably, they should have a bag for just for the, the, the devices. And then another bag just for being a handbag with the mm. little girly things. The lipstick, the comb, credit card. The designer handbag or the stylish, fashionable handbag. But a girl, to me, is fashionable even when she's wearing a knapsack. However, that knapsack must be chosen with choice. It could be a pink knapsack. It could be a designer-driven, loco knapsack. But the knapsack should somehow coordinate with the look of the clothes. She has to coordinate her look, uh, her accessories with her knapsack or her knapsack with her accessories. I think that girls on the street are very interesting. Sometimes girls on the street are not very interesting when they are showing too much skin. Mm. Too much of a midriff, too much of cleavage, too much decolletage, you know, too much, you know, build up the bosoms and stuff like that. Mm. But I like the way people dress, basically. You know, I... I Fashion is more democratic than ever. What does that mean? Fashion is free. You have a freedom of choice. It's more liberal. It's liberating. Fashion more people is liberating. can get in the game. Yes, absolutely. And have fashion and make it fun. Whereas before, fashion was dictated to you by rules. When fashion was when fashion that I loved, they broke through the ceiling in 71, say 1968 through 71, 74. Fashion crashed and became something very exciting from the 60s, the youthquake 60s when the young people influenced fashion, when black people influenced fashion, Diana Ross influenced fashion, Lady Sings the Blues influenced fashion, The Supremes influenced fashion, Barbara Streisand influenced fashion. That was the moment when fashion turned the curve and it moved the dial to a kind of freedom that never been seen before. Because before that, in the 60s, fashion, although people were fashionable, but they were mostly dressed by rules. Rules of the mini dress, Rules of correct dress, rules of society, influence and, and, fashion. And now rules are more able to be broken? Rules are not established anymore. There's no rules. You can wear a dinner dress to 10 o'clock office meeting. You can wear a cocktail dress to work and be accepted. The late Diana Vila wrote about this in her memoir. She said, I'd see the day when women will show up with halter tops at work. When, and now that has happened. When you talk about the rules being dictated and, and, and the, the, the direction being given from on high. You made me think of that scene from The Devil Wears Prada. Yes. Right, where Meryl Streep, the Anna Winter character, yes, is yes, yes. telling us, yes, of course we dressed you even though you don't think we did. <laughs> what do you think about that scene and, and this notion of the folks at the top, which you, the group yeah. you were part of, dictating down to the folks of what they're going to wear? It did it happen. It existed for a long time. That economy happened? That economy happened in the 60s and the 50s. What about when you were there? No, when I was there, it was more liberated. It was already liberated. People made their choices. They read Vogue for guidance. 
but people have made choices before, after, during that, when I was there in the 80s. In the 60s, fashion was still dictated to from the upper classes. Fashion came down to the streets with the great moment of the Woodstock and the great moment of the Cultural Revolution of 68. 68 through 78, fashion was going through an evolution that was based on freedom and choices and different cultural signals. Before that time, fashion was dictated by a certain elite that dictated fashion through the pages of certain high-glossy fashion magazines. So if you followed fashion through the magazines, whatever your status was, if it was like, if you were a student, you read Mademoiselle Glamour. If you were married to someone wealthy, or lived on Park Avenue, you read Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Town and & Country. And if you really wanted to be fabulous and you were black, you read Vogue and Ebony and Jet, and you followed the way people looked in Ebony and Jet and Vogue. And then you embraced it, really, when Beverly Johnson got on the cover of Vogue in August of 1974. And that's when there was a breakthrough moment for the black people. Miss mm. Beverly Johnson was the first black woman on the cover of Vogue. <laughs> in 1969, <laughs> Naomi Sims was on the cover of Life magazine. Naomi Sims was on the cover of Life magazine. And Naomi Sims also broke through as the pioneer woman, as a supermodel, when she, when I was a child, sitting at home with my grandmother, and Naomi Sims was the first black woman in a Bell telephone commercial. Black as the night in a pale pink Bill Blass organza dress. And there she was running around advertising Bell telephone. Telephone commercial. And this was a moment. And this was a moment of aspiration and inspiration. That was the first time I ever noticed that a black woman was in advertising on television. Mm-hmm. And Naomi Sims was the absolutely great supermodel in Vogue, Life Magazine, Vogue style lifestyle pages, Vogue party pages, inspiration for Halston. And then you have the moments when you this moment of freedom in the 70s was very, very widespread. It was global. You know, fashion became freer. Fashion was people who were running around going to rock concerts. People were being photographed for their youth, for their energy, their vitality, the Rolling Stones. Bianca Jagger became a big icon in fashion. She was married to Mr. Mick Jagger. She was Mrs. Mick Jagger. And she had a great influence in fashion. But she was often dressed with antique hats on and Aussie Clark clothes. And this was the underground because Aussie Clark was not a brand name designer. Aussie Clark was a designer in England. And she was wearing little Aussie Clark halter dresses running around on tour with the Rolling Stones being written up by Truman Capote. That's when I first noticed Bianca, noticed Bianca Jagger. When she was on the Rolling Stones tour with Lee Radzibel and Truman was writing about the Rolling Stones tour in the Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. And there was Bianca Jagger running around in little pristine Aussie Clark halter dresses. You know, she got married in the south of France in the East Saint Laurent white suit. <laughs> Wait, what does this have to do with Cerulean Blue? What did it? What were we talking about? Cerulean Blue. <laughs> I was saying, this, this. You remind me of this famous scene in the Devil Wears oh, Prada, oh, well, well, and this notion, oh. this group that you were part of. Did they direct, dictate fashion trends? Oh, we didn't the say that, we, people are gonna wear Cerulean. We didn't say people are gonna wear mint green this season. No, that's like a funny face. That's in the movies. That's all a fantasy. People will say, well, this is a big ongoing trend. Maybe it's the print dress in a certain season. That's going to be big, and you have to be able to know that before it happens. Did it's you guys rec- Well, this is what I'm. Gonna, did you guys recognize the it, or did you shape it? 
you recognized it, and then you embraced it. And then you shaped it. You shaped it through the pages of the You page. made it happen. You made you, these you offered it. You happen. offered it as a suggestion. And it was up to the individuals to follow that or not. It's depending on how strong it was. Mm. You know, Vreeland's Vogue dictated. And after that, Grace Mirabella Vogue, Mirabella's Vogue was a liberating kind of a Vogue. Vreeland's Vogue was a very autocratic point of view about fashion. So then Anna Winter's Vogue is... Liberated and offers many choices and does not dictate. It just presents the best excellence of standards of what fashion is. Because it's supposed to be for a broader class of, of people. Of people. Diversity, As, yeah. Asians, blacks, Latinos, whatever. you got to read Vogue. Middle class and... Whatever you got to be rich, you got to read something in Vogue for you. Back in the day, you aspired to Vogue. But it's Vogue is very much a part of high and low moments culture. How long were you there? I started in 83, and I sort of think I left in 97. In 1983 and 90... How did you last no, no, so... No, 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 not 97. Good Lord, no, good Lord. 83 to about 2010. How did you last so long? Through my faith. It was just chiffon trenches swimming through the... Navigating through the <laughs> chiffon <laughs> trenches. Through my faith, and I had to look up to my faith and my ancestors, my roots and stuff, to survive that. It was hard. But I did it with grace and dignity and style. What was hard about it? Politics and, you know, political backstabbing from yeah. other editors and just the politics. People in the industry are just hard. Racism is hard. The racism. You know, I talk about in the dialogue, in the documentary how Clara Saint, the public relations of, of director of Rive Gauche, Saint Laurent, was going around Paris calling me Queen Kong. Right. And one of my best friends, Paloma Picasso at the time, who was also a great friend of Clara Saint told me this, and I internalized it and bottled it up, and I didn't talk about it until I sat down one day with Kate at the Vogue archives and talked about that. That was a racist, hard thing to take, but I thought I was running around Paris and being successful, and this woman is calling me Queen Kong to be negative, to be, to be racist, because she didn't like me. And I finally got to, to articulate that thought, and recently I articulated in a book Christopher Pectonis wrote a book called Untold Eve and Lulu, and I had told him the story, and I mentioned her name. So this was a, a cathartic moment for me to talk about that. Have you had lots of moments like that? I have had many moments like that all my life, yes. I mean, within the professional? Absolutely. People, in the, I was very young and on top of the world and running around discussing Yves Saint Laurent and all of this and embracing Karl Lagerfeld, Hubert de Givenchy, and... By the way, Hubert de Givenchy, he was a master of elegance. He died this year. I'm so happy to see that Megan went and chose that beautiful, simple dress from the designer, Claire, who is re who's now designing Givenchy. Megan Markle. He would be um, Duchess of Sussex. He would be happy in his grave to see that that lady looks so elegant and simple, the way Audrey Hepburn looked. She's a new black Audrey Hepburn. But like, yes, true, but like Megan Markle. You were quite often the only black person That's right. in the room. In I the never industry. thought about it, and I didn't. I did not use that. I did not use did my it, blackness. Did I did not, not use. You, my... Well, n not use it, but but but. Did you ever feel alone? Did you ever feel like no, because, I'm left out? No, because... but no. I had great friends who remained my friends in fashion. I had people who took care of me, who loved me, who saw me for who I was. They saw my talent. 
I'm Betty Catru, Yves Saint Laurent's Great Muse, Lulu LaFalaise, Carl Lagerfeld. These people embraced me for who I was. They, they didn't keep me there for my looks because I was tall and black. They knew that I had something to say and knowledge. I'll give you an instance of one of the other great things. Is once one of my bosses at uh, Women's Wear Daily came over to Paris, and he, he made it up. He made it up. He was trying to intimidate me and make me feel small. And he came into a meeting. He said, you, you. They're telling me that you're in and out of every designer bed in Paris. You've been in every designer bed in Paris. That had never happened to me in my life. And I said, that's how racist. It would take a lot to be in and out of designer bed. And that was a buck. It's like, oh, you're only good for a buck. And that was so unmade up. I have never been in designer bed. I've never slept with a designer. I have been in designer beds as guests in a guest bedroom right. without the designer being in bed with me, right. he or she. Right. And I thought that was the most racist thing. And I went to the Church of the Madeleine in Paris. And I sat down and meditated and reflected upon what he'd said. I didn't confront him with it. And two weeks later, I resigned from Women's Wear Daily because of this man who said that to me. And then Mr. Fairchild called me on the phone and said, please, please do whatever you want. Stay in Paris, do whatever you want. We'll, we want you to be with us. We'll he, they were afraid I was going to go somewhere else. And I wanted to go to Vogue, but I didn't get to Vogue. I was going to go to Vogue. I thought I was going straight to Vogue, but I didn't get the job right then. I didn't get to Vogue until 83. I said, no, thank you. And then I stayed in Paris three months in a designer bed. <laughs> in Carl Lagerfeld's guest room, paid for and food bought to me on trays. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. But you generally survive the racism and the microaggressions by... Internalizing and bottling up feelings and thoughts of racism. Not pushing back. And not pushing back. And not clapping back. I didn't clap back. Being quiet. I just kept going through the chiffon trenches knowing that I was doing the right thing to get my work appraised by the highest and the best. My work was validated by the highest people at that time. Deanna Vreeland, Andy Warhol, John Fairchild. Those three were making fashion in the 70s. John Fairchild was the king. Deanna Vreeland was the empress. Andy Warhol was the catalyst. And those people adored me and admired me for talent. And that's all I wanted to know, that they were I was doing the right thing. Mm. When you are looking at a scene, a moment, when you're on set, mm-hmm. and I can see so much happening in the mm-hmm. eyes and mm-hmm. the mind, and you're clicking and you're looking mm-hmm. at the details, what's going through your mind in those moments when you're somebody's come out, they're wearing what they're supposed to be wearing? And I'm processing everything in my mind. I'm processing every single moment. I'm processing the dress, the clothes, the attitude. I'm processing how this is going to impact the fashion or that individual's collection. I have never written a note in a fashion show. I don't take notes, I don't scribble, I don't sketch, I don't draw. I put it up here and I just process. When you see me scanning a fashion, I'm simply processing what this is going to mean to the man's work or the review I have to write or the success of his show. So it's going. what's going through my mind is the beauty of it, the individual wearing it, is it important? Is it important, the evolution of this person's work? Is this a great color? Is this inspiring for the color? Inspiration? It's a quick process. I would hope it would be like the processes of great directors or something. You know, people who are sitting around who process things that are very important. One thing that you did at Vogue was you made yourself a brand. As a non-fashion person, (laughs) I knew who you were. But you didn't outshine the boss. Never could, never did. Never could, right? Oh, never but, would, never but would. Not never. On, but, but that's an important thing to do, yeah. to be able to promote yourself yeah. without outshining the oh, boss, because you had an iconic boss, and you were able oh, to be I iconic how to without... Oh. So how do, you, how do you do that? Because you instinctively feel it. You feel, you feel the boss, and you feel how you can stand next to her and be supportive, and yet be as, as equally as important to her, next to her. And she gave me that opportunity. Because, you know, I had knowledge. I wasn't there for my sexuality and my sexual glamour. <laughs> because when I opened my mouth, I knew what I was talking about. The, the colors and the, the, the inspiration and the moods. I, I bonded. I had a vocabulary of fashion that most people would not know, you know? Johnny Versace, the late, great Johnny Versace, was an amazing designer. The late, great Isaiah Laya, an amazing talent, an extraordinary man. So these people are the people that I got to know and called my best friends. So when I went home at night, I would basically be continuing my work relationships on the telephone or at dinner. Uh, my great friend, Manolo Blahnik, who I'm called, my brother separated at birth. I mean, I would have five-hour conversations on the phone with him between Paris and London. 
based on something I'd seen at Versailles. Or I would have conversations with Deanna Vreeland on the weekends at her apartment. We were, I remember once we talked to four hours into the night about espadrille, and the best place to get espadrilles in the south of France. And we would talk about hours and hours and hours about Marguerite Dietrich in Shanghai Express, uh, hours and hours about Queen Marie in Romania, hours and hours about Lucina Visconti. You're an intellectual. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad you realized it. I know you knew that, didn't well, I you? Already knew, I already knew that, but I wonder if you, you find yourself surrounded by people who are not. No! I always... This is what my relations have made upon. Carl Lagerfeld and I would not have bonded had mm-hmm. I not talked to him, knew what he he was interested in. My first meeting with Carl Lagerfeld was in May of 1975 at the Plaza Hotel. Taken up to the plaza, to his suite, with Andy Warhol. I was then fashion editor of the Interview magazine, which just bankrupted and folded. So this was a great, that. great moment, a gateway to moments. And and Andy said, oh, Andre, are you going to come meet Carl Lagerfeld? Oh, gee. I said, Carl Lagerfeld, he said, I want you to do the interview. But do you know, I sat down and read everything I could possibly read about Carl Lagerfeld that I could possibly inform myself. So when I got to that interview, dressed in khaki shorts and a Turnbull and Asser shirt and a Turnbull and Asser necktie and aviator glasses from Halston, that I had this look and knee socks. So today someone said, oh, did you wear hot pants in the 70s? I said, how dare you? I would never be seen in a hot pant. These were khaki shorts. And then he says, tacky shorts? I said, get it right. Khaki shorts. This was Jacob Bernstein. I said, I would be caught dead in a pair of hot pants. Who would ever wear hot pants except the waiters in 54? <laughs> hot pants? That's no. So I sat down at that interview and I asked him the proper questions. And I was cut to the chase. 18th century was his focus. 18th century, the style lifestyle of 18th century. Not only what Marie Antoinette was wearing, but who was her designer? Not only Leonardo, the hairdresser, but what rug were they walking on in Versailles? What porcelain cup were they drinking tea from or coffee? What cafetiere was given to Marie Antoinette for to have her favorite hot chocolate? What was the paintings? What was the paintings of Vigée Lebrun? What were the screens? What were the tapestries, the fabrics? All that stuff was very vital to Carl's aesthetic then, designing for Chloe. So at the end of the interview, there's Andy, Fred, Bob, the whole entourage of the factory against the whole entourage of Carl Lagerfeld at the Plaza Hotel in his suite on a Sunday afternoon for tea. He's come to New York to launch his perfume, Chloe. Chloe was his first big perfume. He was designed for Chloe. And it was a beautiful, in a beautiful bottle with a lacquered flower, a calla lily. And Carl said, come with me into my bedroom. <laughs> I thought, uh-oh, what's happening here? But we were all there, and I thought, well, why does he want to see me in the bedroom alone? And so I got up. It was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I went into the bedroom. And in his bedroom were two huge steamer trunks like Dietrich would carry on a steamer. He came to New York for five days with two steamer trunks, seven feet tall steamer trunks from Goyard. Goyard in Paris, nine feet tall in Goyard. He opened them, and the things were flushed. Out would come mufflers. Out would come shirts. Things are flying across the room. This is good for you. Take this. I'm tired of this. Take this, darling. Take this. Take this. This will look good on you. He bonded with me over what I'd asked him, and he knew that we would instantly become friends. And from that day forward, we became the best of friends. What was Andy Warhol like? Oh, he was fabulous. He was he was he like genius. a child. He was like, he saw the world through the child eyes, the child of an innocent, the eyes of an innocent child. It was all curious to him. It was all new to him, but he was very clever and very smart. He was a brilliant man. He loved his money. He went to church every day and thanked God for his money. He was Catholic. 
He loved his mother. His mother lived with him in New York. When he came to New York, he brought his mother to New York to live because they grew up in poverty. Right. And he was amazing. He was so positive about everybody and everything. No one could do anything wrong. Everybody. Grace Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bianca Jagger, Mick Jagger, everyone was fabulous. And so, therefore, his life was fabulous because I think he was grateful he had survived that assassination attempt from uh, the back before I ever got to the factory. Mm-hmm. He was wonderful. He used to always go to dinner with a tape recorder in his pocket. You had to be very aware of that. He used to always take a camera. He would snap you just like he did. You had to be aware of that. But you had to be very careful what you said at dinner because he would be he would have it taped. So the diaries, that's why they had the Andy Wall diaries, edited by Pat Hackett. But he was great. He was great. Unconditional supporter of whatever you wanted to be or do at the interview. Did you? Except when he wanted to do the piss paintings, there was a series of piss paintings. Um, he did, They were in the Bobo in Paris. And when he started the piss paintings, uh, he, there was only one person doing them, Victor Hugo, Halston's lover. Mm. And Victor Hugo would haul out his penis Mm. And then pee on the canvas, and they would still screen it. Mm. And he said, oh, Andre, come and take your penis out and do the piss paintings. I said, are you crazy? <laughs> my grandmother, what am I going to say to my grandmother when it comes out? Are you crazy? <laughs> Go back and continue your work. <laughs> did you learn more from Anna Winter, or did you teach her more? No, I learned from Anna Winter very important things. Be precise. Don't waste time with a meeting that goes any longer than nine minutes. Make your mind up fast. Don't change your mind. Go to lunch. Lunch is over in less than 15 minutes. Food is not important to her. And the first time I learned that, we went to lunch one day. We left the office to go to lunch at 1.30. We were back in the office by 1.50. And we had sat down for lunch at an Italian restaurant. I don't even remember what we had, but I know I did not have much. I think I was like a spoon. In the... Fast, fast track, fast track. Because she's obsessed with Vogue. She's obsessed with... She knows her trajectory. She knows where she's going, and she does not change her mind. She does not suffer change. She's not, well, let's think about this. And again. We used to, under Grace Rebella, we used to go for the whole weekend after the fashion shows. We'd go for the whole weekend and start on Saturday morning looking at slides. In those days, you had to go look in the slide box. I'd be looking at Bill Blast from 7 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, trying to decide which Bill Blast dress we're going to photograph. When Anna went to this instant, we know. Well, I think this, 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 this. You say, I like that dress, that dress, that dress. Fine. It's done. I learned from a rapidity of decision-making, precision, and a kind of court protocol that I would associate with the highest levels of the court of Versailles. What do you mean? The intrigue of navigating, how to navigate through the waters of politics. Political intrigue of the fashion world. She always knows how to come back around full circle when there's a little precise drama or something when people have had spats with the designers and things like that. I mean, yes, you wonder how is it that she's been able to stay atop? Because she's been able to stay atop, although she is the only person. She's been along with anyone. Yeah. At Vogue. Yeah. And it's because she is a decision maker, and she's precise, and she follows her instincts. And she's very serious about it, too. I think she gives a lot of thought to Vogue. What did she teach? What did you teach her? I taught her, I don't know what I taught her. I never quite had a discussion. I think I taught her perhaps a bit more how to be free and how to be more spontaneous. And but you, to... have, you have a point of view. You are I known in the fashion yeah. world for having a point of view. What is the 
Andre Leontali point of view. Why do all these people need Andre in the room? Well, thank you for saying that, Tori, and I really appreciate that because I do think that's important. I think that I might have taught her how to approach the world, the, the power world of fashion, the people who make fashion on the top with spontaneity and with being real and authentic. Like, maybe I could go to see Karl Lagerfeld and I could get him to laugh. And maybe I could get Karl Lagerfeld to change his mind about something because he trusted me and we were friends because instinctively he was a friend. We're no longer that close because life has changed. But Karl Lagerfeld and I were friends, i say up until four years ago, and close, close, close friends. I went through hell with Karl Lagerfeld and he went through hell with me. My grandmother died in 1989 and in, 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 in February and Karl Lagerfeld's lover, Jacques de Bache, had died in 1989. And that Christmas, we were both in grieving and mourning. It's the same year Mrs. Vreeland died in 89. Mm. So I lost my grandmother, Mrs. Vreeland, and Karl lost Jacques. And we went to, he sent for me on the Concord to come to his house for Christmas. And I got there on Christmas Eve and I stayed for three weeks into the couture collections in January. And beautiful, and that was in a guest bedroom, you know, he had a house with many guest bedrooms. So there was Christmas Eve dinner, and there were beautiful presents, and he gave me the most beautiful Fabergé diamond pin with the diamonds spelling my name, A-L-T, where he mm. found it on the, but he gave it to me in a little paper cup, it was a little, just a little paper cup, and I still have that, it's the most beautiful thin. And we sat there, I wouldn't see him except for lunch, he comes down for lunch, lunch was called around him, sometimes he'd come down for lunch at four o'clock. And we just have to sit in our rooms and wait for him to have lunch called. And then dinner might be at 10 o'clock because he was working, sketching. And that was a great friendship. And Anna Winter knew that, that she could depend on me to get the beef. Where's the beef? See, yeah, exactly. Your ability to charm people. Yeah, and to get the people to give you the, and, give and me the goods. to trust you. And to give you the goods. So how have you done that? I've done it through my natural being, my roots. I've done it through who I am. I'm just fun. It's me. I, they saw in me the people who really mattered, and they still matter. Tom Ford saw this in me. Mark Jacobs sees this in me. John Van Furstenberg sees this in me. Mutual Prado sees this in me. Hubert Givenchy saw it in me. Instinctively, people gravitate to people who have something that is special, and through the attitude and the way it's presented, they can gravitate towards it. I mean, I, I'm, I've impressed so many people that impressed me. And I have been impressive to them based on something, knowledge. Uh. And it wasn't based on some sex and some racist sexual. No, no. I'm no sex buck. What the hell is this man talking about? No, but, you, been, have the, but, but you have the gift of gab. And you can talk to anybody, right? <laughs> it's based on my knowledge and based on my love for humanity. Yeah. I love hu human beings. I love people. I love people. I, I always admired you. I admired you on your show. What was it called? The Cycle. <laughs> I remember the name of the show. <laughs> but I admired you on that time, that, that time with you in that restaurant with the Ingrid and Carl. Mm. I mean, uh, people I admire. <clears throat> I just met Tiffany Haddish, and she's extraordinary. And she sought me out. Mm. She sought me out. She thought I didn't know who she was. And we were at the Met Ball, and I said, come here. And she came over to my table. And I said, I think you're marvelous, and your success is just great. You know, she had her assistant call me a week later. Uh, Miss Haddish would like to send you something. What's your address? I said, well, have I said anything negative about her? Why is she sending me something? She'd just like to send you something for having been so nice to her at the Met. And then I got this note from Tiffany. I looked in your eyes, and I saw the man that was going to take me to the next level. 
Mm. I was so shocked you didn't do who I was. And I said, well, that's so nice. And then she sent me these flowers, and I invited her to something. And her sister said, well, she's too busy to come back for you on Sunday night to go to Ava DuVernay's party at La Duray for Qu Queen Sugar. And then T Tiffany, I said, well, let's tell Tiffany that if she can't make this date, maybe she can make another date where I'm going to a Vogue ball, the ballroom, the Vogue balls are coming back, you know, the resurgence of the ball culture, the ball culture. You know what that means. Yeah, yeah. Of course you do. Yeah. And um, so she wrote back, Tiffany says, uh-uh, I'm flying back for that. I'll be there Sunday. <laughs> what do I have to, what do I wear? I'm coming back to go to that party. And we went to that party and we, we went to the party and we stayed until the end with Ava DuVernay. And that is what it's all about. Okay? Mm. And that is how I think Andy saw in me, Mrs. Vreeland saw in me the first and foremost. I loved and worshipped Mrs. Vreeland. But when I got to the museum, oh my God, I was hiding behind columns when she would walk through. I didn't even want to go out and see her. So they said, Mrs. Vreeland is coming now down the steps to the museum, to the costume institute. So Mrs. Vreeland would come at one, one o'clock. And when she the walk down from the street, level to the basement of the Costume Institute was a long walk. They'd ring up from the street level and say, Mrs. Vreeland is on her way down. So it took me time. I had time to hide behind a column just to see her walking through. Very dramatic performance. But one day I did something and um, I was given an assignment and Mrs. Vreeland walked through and I sit, stood hid behind the column to see her response on her face. And she stopped. She looked at it. She kept walking. Five minutes later, I was told by a secretary, please come in and see Mrs. Vreeland. She would like to see you. Mrs. Vreeland had asked, who did this thing, this, this costume, who had put this costume on this mannequin in this way? And then they said, well, Mr. Talley, he's volunteering. And she called me in and she said, what is your name? I said, Andre. And she wrote my name big on a yellow, yellow legal pad, so big that I could read it from that side of the desk, Andre, mm. the helper. And she put a pencil down and she stood up and she said, you will stay next to my side for the duration of my show. You'll be by my side every day. Because you had put together an outfit. That I didn't know what the hell I was doing. That she that liked. My, that she liked the way I had arranged it on a mannequin. She just liked the way I had put it on a mannequin. It was a costume from Lana Turner, Lana Turner called The Prodigal, Prodigal, where she's a goddess and she's thrown into a big pit of fire. And it was sort of like a Paco Rabanne metallic swimsuit with fringe. But the suit was presented to me in a box and it had become undone, all the fringe elements, the metal fringe. And so I was given that box and a pair of pliers. And there I, got, I went and I put it together. I put it on the mannequin for her to come by and review. And she saw it before she knew who did it. And she asked who did it. And they said, I did it. And then she called me in. And there we were. Mm. And we became great friends. <laughs> but I always listened. I always listened. Always listened. What does that mean? I always listened to what people said. I never, never gave an opinion. I always listened. I never gave an opinion until I was asked one. Mm. I never opened my mouth and said, well, Mrs. Vreeland should be like that. Oh, hell to the no. You have to listen to what Mrs. Vreeland is saying because she's giving you the narrative to, dis to, to create that mannequin, to create that moment in time when that dress, you have to create the vision of the dress in the film. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So what are the keys to your career success? Politeness. Mm. Uh, charm. Tenacity. And homework. Research. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can spin it around on a dime. I used to be able to spin it around on a dime a review of a collection. I would spin it around on a dime. I'd run right back to the office and just sit on a telex machine. In those days, we had telex machines. You ever had to work on a telex machine? No, that's before my time. Oh, you're so young. Baby, you had to... It's like doing a foot pedal on an organ, and you have to sit there and bang out that telex machine at night by yourself. And it's like a big machine. And my things were filed from Paris by telex. And I would sit there and write them from my memory in 78 Saint Laurent. Why don't you take notes? Because I'm processing. I don't need to take a note. I'm looking at the clothes. People are scribbling and writing. All these people are drawing and scribbles and stuff. I'm looking at the things go by. I'm looking at the narrative that's going by me. I'm not going to put my head down. I want to see what's going left to right, left to right, back and forth. Is Munya creating the attitude of Porgy and Bess? Is Kiarat? Is she... How are these girls walking? How are these hats? What are these? What do these hats mean? What did this chiffon mean? Pallon Picasso's wedding. Why is she picking a red hat to wear to a wedding and a red blouse and a white jacket and a black skirt? What does that mean? It means she's unique and individualistic. She's culture. She's the daughter of Pablo Picasso. Therefore, she can wear a red satin blouse from Yves Saint Laurent to her first wedding with a white wool jacket and a black wrapped skirt lined in red to match the blouse and some high heel ankle strap shoes, and it's called style. And you don't sit there and take notes. You sit there and you look. The movie is passing you by. You might blink, you might miss something. You might fall asleep, you might do this, and you might miss it. Every time I see a show, I see it go by, and I realize there's something that I can relate to. Even a worse show, I can find something good. Even the worst fashion show, I can find a good piece. And you always have a good way of 
expressing your opinion. Yeah. Not to, you know, it's, I remember when <clears throat> used to do full frontal fashion. Yes. And my wife w- works in fashion. She worked oh, yeah. in fashion then. Yes. And so we would watch that yeah. like religiously. Yeah. And I'll never forget we were sitting there on the couch and you were talking about Nicholas Gesquier. Mm. And you said he brought the water to the well. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't know the history of fashion. I don't know what that means. Well, but I just got a sense vision. of um, an emotional he sense of what that well. means. And I know he that that's something major. The water to the well. The water to the well. But the way, the way, not the not getting it historically correct, but the way you choose the to describe the attitude, the moment, of, the moment was important. He bought the water to the well. <laughs> he didn't go to the well. But for nobody the water. else said that. Somebody else might have said he re mm-hmm. uh, he redesigned fashion. Uh-uh. But you said, no, he brought the water to the well. So that explodes uh, in the mind. That's because I came up with people who read, mm. and Mrs. Vreeland was steeped in literature. Mrs. Vreeland was loving literature. Mrs. Vreeland knew Isaac Dennison. She was a friend, Baroness Blixen, out of Africa, went to Mrs. Vreeland's for dinner. Mrs. Freeland loved the written word. She loved to read. She wanted to read the novels, the, the tales of the Jenga, the Japanese novels. The Princess Shay Shonagon was her favorite book. So what did you read? What did you love? I loved very much Gustave Flaubert, Madame Bovary. That was one of my favorite books, one of the first books I ever loved. Don't ask me why. I guess she was a fashion victim, you know. Killed herself because she ran up so many debts. Um, I loved reading about... Gustav Lover, Salambo. I love very much Truman Capote. Was my favorite because I loved him because he's from the South. He grew up with his aunt Sue, which is similar to me growing up with my grandmother. In Cold Blood? No, not in Cold Blood. Thanksgiving Memory. Mm, love my that. favorite but book I, ever, ever. It's the best book I ever read. Thanksgiving Memory? Yeah, because he was his aunt Sue was like my grandmother. They were similar. His aunt Sue would bake these fruitcakes. And my grandmother and great-grandmother would make fruitcakes in the fall, and then they would not eat them until Christmas time. they put cheesecloth over them and soak them in bourbon to keep them moist on the covered dish. And this was a very important tradition. And then Truman Capote wrote about that, and I discovered that, and I thought that was brilliant. And I got to meet Truman Capote. I used to go to his apartment at UN Plaza. What else did you read that you loved? Well... I loved very much reading Stéphane Schwag on Marie Antoinette. I loved reading about Versailles, 18th century France. I loved biographies on great people. I loved the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, mm. of a slave. I thought that was brilliant. I'd keep it on my desk and remind me. And um, I loved James Baldwin. And f- recently, I loved anything that Tai Nishi. Yeah, he wrote the most wonderful books, and I also loved his great essay recently in Atlantic on Kanye West and the dilemma of Kanye West. Mm. And I think that we all should pray for Kanye West. <laughs> we should not abandon this man, but we should pray for him. We should pray for him. He needs, he needs prayer. Yeah. <laughs> he needs prayer and love. Why, why, why is Kim a fashion icon? Because she's beautiful. Because There's lots of beautiful women. Well, There's lots of beautiful women. Well, there are very few beautiful women the way Kim is. Kim has a reality show that made her millionaire. Some mother created this show called... But she's a fashion icon. Why? Yes, because she she dresses as Givenchy and Versace and Vivian Westwood and, 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 and Laquan Smith and whoever else she wants to dress at. And she looks good in the damn clothes. And you cannot say, what makes a fashion icon a fashion icon? 
fashion icons are just happened. The way the Duchess of Sussex is going to become the new black Audrey Hepburn. She is going to be that woman. I watched a film of her online before I got here, where she goes into the palace with the prince. They're walking up the steps to meet the, the Prince Charles for his birthday celebration. After her, she's got the look, she's got the shape, she's soigné, her heels, her stockings. They made a point. She's sacrificed, she's wearing stockings. Well, of course she's supposed to wear stockings. What is this racist shit? She's wearing stockings. What else is she supposed to wear? But seamless stockings. And her heels, the way she's walking in her heels, the way she's put her hat on. The hat has a certain rakish. Mm. The heels, the way she has her hands, the delicacy of her is very important. And you must just quietly observe these things as they go by you. The way her wedding passed through the whole world through the television. And it made a great impact. Kim has had that impact. I first saw Kim when she was with little Reggie. Little Reggie? Reggie? Ray J. Ray, Ray, Ray J? Ray J. Brandy's Ray J. brother. And she was backstage at a fashion show with him holding hands. And then I saw her when she was uh, pregnant with, the, with a baby. Did she have a baby before? Yeah. She had a baby before she got married yeah. to uh, Kanye. Yes. Uh, that I don't. Yes, she had a baby before she was married to Kanye, right? Yes, she did. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you are going to follow Kim. Well, she came to the Met Ball when you're pregnant with a Givenchy dress on. And I know that she was, had that baby before Little North was born, before she married Kanye. Because I think that Baby North was at the wedding in Florence. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Why don't you do your homework? You... I'm, I'm... Oh, you mean before the wedding, not before Kanye. No, before the wedding. Yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. I thought you meant <laughs> no. a baby with somebody else. No. no, no, no. But, but I, I mean, I, I feel like her being this reigning fashion icon is partly sort of like... It's a part of what today is. Which People is watch what? television. Reality shows are so popular. I mm. never understood them. Our reality shows are what can make you. Yes. I mean, those Atlanta housewives, those housewives of Beverly Hills, the housewives of New York, go figure. As a man in fashion... Do you ever think, do you ever feel a little envy for the options that the women have? Because they get to have a no, much more no, complex no, no. game than the men I have do. no envy for what the women have. Men have the great options, too. They just don't use them. Men have the options as well. They have the, so many offerings. Men can be so fashionable. You know, look at Elton John. Look at the men who are fashionable today. Who are the men that we should look up to in terms of fashionability? Lately? I can't say all right offhand with men. I think... Um, what men are there? Let me see. Migos that lives in your neighborhood. Migos, the group. Do you like the Migos? Yeah, they're, they're, they're hot. They're hot. <laughs> the way they dress? They're fabulous. Oh, my God. <laughs> ah, he said so they cool. live in my neighborhood. <laughs> well, that's Brooklyn. <laughs> they live in Atlanta. Oh, I thought that someone told me they lived in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you meant like neighborhood. Like, that's, that's your people. Oh, that's no, hip-hop. no, no. Lived, I thought they lived in Brooklyn. I really thought they lived in Brooklyn. <laughs> I liked it the way it was. Oh, Migos is one. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. And another one. Wiz Khalifa is absolutely the best. Really? Wiz Khalifa is so elegant and so eloquent. And you know he's smoking a lot of blunts. <laughs> but he is elegant. <laughs> and I've seen him perform. I don't think I've heard the word elegant applied well, baby, to Wiz Khalifa. You wait till you see Wiz Khalifa walk up the steps of the Met Ball, and you will then agree with me. <laughs> Wiz Khalifa is elegant, okay? Yes. Migos, Wiz Khalifa. And you know who's really elegant? Jaden Smith. That gender fluidity, it is very inspiring. 
Jaden Smith is extremely inspiring. It's mm. a young man. You like that that barrier breaking. Jaden Smith. The gender barrier yes. breaking. I don't think Wiz is gender barrier breaking. He's fabulous. No, of course, but but you. I like but... I like Jaden's choices of clothing. He's an iconic representative of the Louis Vuitton brand, and he does it very well. Yes, he can put on a kilt and he can put on some killer boots and make it happen. Mm. Looks incredible, incredible. What's your superpower? I don't have a superpower. I don't know what that would be. I, I don't be... believe that. I believe. I don't you know what my superpower them. is. I don't know what can. I don't know what can make or break me in a situation. I don't. I sincerely don't. I'm answering it truthfully. I do not know. I just go for it. I just get up and go every day. When I just go through the day, as I have to. <clears throat> what do you say when you first are waking up and coming? What oh, do you say? I'm rubbing my knees, trying to get the circulation in. <laughs> I'm 69 years old. I'll be 70 in October, if I live to see it. And then I wake up and I say a little piece of scripture, silently. And then I get up and I go to my computer, and my bedroom, and I do about 30 minutes of emails. And then I navigate down, and I know what I'm going to wear because it's basically the same thing every day. I have many versions of them. And then I just navigate through the appointments I have to go through. I try not to be stressed out for the ta- to ch- the car and the traffic and all that crap. But I basically uh, do the same thing every day. Are you optimistic? Uh, yes, to a degree. Yes, I am. I'm optimistic personally. On a personal level, I know that everything will be okay in the end. But it's a difficult struggle to get through the day. Yeah. But I'm not optimistic about the world. Sure. The world. Is but perfect. you're optimistic about you and your ability yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. achieve. Yeah, and yeah. I'm very optimistic about that. Conquer. Very optimistic about the, being able to achieve. <clears throat> I'm not optimistic because still people don't get me. With this film, people still will not get me. They don't get you, Tori. You would have been, we, we, you, we both could have been rich. They don't get us. They don't get black men. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, the, you have successfully made yourself indispensable in a world of of subjective opinions. Thank you. Thank you. Dominated by small, physically small white w- women. women. Yes. Right? And you've been twice as tall. You're how tall are you? Six six. Six, six seven. Six six black coming from an entirely no, different world. No physical threat, no threat, no sexual threat. None. 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 How, how did you just get along with being the only gigantic black man in the room in a room full of in an industry full of? T- it was difficult. Yeah, I had the worst moments in life, alone, insecure at night when I went to bed at eleven thirty at the Ritz Hotel, insecure, alone, difficult. I could hold my own talking to Anna Winter. I could hold my own talking to the Baroness the Rothschild. The, hold my own talking to the Baron Eric the Rothschild, the Baron the Red Day. Sal Schlumberger, Andy Warhol. But? It's difficult to go back alone and you feel insecure, you feel doubtful, you're going alone. I've never had a lover, so I'm sitting there in the guilt guilt hell of the Ritz. I was always in the guilt hell, guilt-plated hell of the Ritz Hotel when I was covering fashion in Paris and talking to Manolo Blahnik for hours or Carl Lagerfeld for hours about something silly or something serious or like espadrilles or... 18th century France, and then I'm sitting there eating um, Madeleine's. <laughs> How is it you never had a lover? Because I never took time. I was afraid. Afraid of what? I don't know. I guess I was just afraid to get emotionally, to make an emotional commitment. You were in the nightlife. You had tons of friends. <laughs> yes. You dressed very well. well. I'm sure that that people were coming at you, offering, you no, know. No, people weren't coming at me. No, 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 no. No, 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 people did not come at me. But I was part of that world. 
that glamorous world, the world of 54, the world of Paris. Yeah. Le Tout Paris, I was very much a part of the Grace Jones. I, 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 I imagine surely there must have been somebody who just tickled your funny bones so much. Well, Grace Jones did at one point, but then she was very aggressive about it, and so I pulled back. <laughs> you dated Grace Jones? I didn't date her, no. Yeah. I said she was very aggressive in her trying to seduce me, but I pulled back. We did not date, no. But Why she did was you pull back from Grace Jones? Because she was uh, physically intimidating. <laughs> In her youth. Isn't that the point of Grace Jones? Well, yes, it is, but I didn't know it, and I wasn't having it. Mm. I sort of regret it now, but anyway. <laughs> exactly. But no, how has there been no one who you're like, he's Because so I much. was busy spending time with people who weren't interested in me sexually. Deanna Vreeland. You think I can talk four hours with Deanna Vreeland about espadrilles and have time to go out and then pick up someone and go have a date? No. I'm focused on Deanna Vreeland. I used to go read entire books to Deanna Vreeland at home on the weekends. Do you think I had time to go and read that book until 4 o'clock in the morning? Is, so this career is possible because you haven't sacrificed the time, or because you have yeah. sacrificed the time yes, for a relationship. Yes, yes. I gave my time to people that mattered to me. You dated your career. I, dated, I guess you could call it that. Mrs. Vreeland was more important to me. Getting dressed to go to Madame Vreeland's house was more important to me than anything in the world. That was ritualistic. It's like going to the court of Versailles. When I got to, to go to Mrs. Freeland's house for dinner alone, I do. I was never invited to Dinner Freeland's house, dinner for eight, dinner for six. I got invited to Oscar and Francois de Laurentiis' house, dinner for eight with Henry Kissinger and Nancy Kissinger, Tatiana and Alexander Lieberman. That was the grand thing. But I did not focus as much on that as going to dinner at Deanna Freeland's house alone because the conversation I knew was going to be intense. It was going to be an intense night, and I was going to learn a lot. We got off the track. Gigantic black man in a world of tiny white people. How did you mollify? <laughs> How did you get through? How did you make them feel life? comfortable with you to let you in? Because I shared knowledge and politeness and gentility. gentility. I agreed with them and, and gave my opinion. And I had support, help. Stop, Teddy, taking pictures. You took enough. Ah, ah. No, no, you're not going to get that. Take that picture. <clears throat> you got my phone? Yeah. Listen, I created scandals. I remember once I was at Carl Lagerfeld's house, and Paloma and her then um, fiance, Rafael Lopez Sanchez, and her, his best friend, Javier, we were in the closet of Carl Lagerfeld's dressing room. And uh, we had just come from some event, and I had to go to a Valentino black tie dinner at Maxine's. And Carl Lagerfeld's house was on the left bank and Maxine's was on the right bank. And my apartment was way down in the 14th on Rue des Plantes. So I'd been to Carl Lagerfeld's house for a cocktail party and I was sitting talking to Paloma and Javier and Raphael. And I said, oh my God, I've got to go. I am on assignment. I've got to go cover Valentina's black tie dinner for his fragrance. And I, gotta, I don't have time to go home and change clothes. And Carl Lagerfeld came to the rescue. It's like Superwoman. He says, darling, darling, you don't have to change clothes. Darling, take my cashmere dressing gown with the fringe. Take care, darling. This will look good on you. He says, you got a white shirt. Borrow him. Take my white shirts and put the white shirt on with a black tie. Take this cashmere dressing gown and just wear it. You can have it afterwards. And he gave me a beautiful black cashmere dressing gown with a very beautiful edge in satin with a beautiful long fringe with the wrap tassel belt. And I taxied over to the Maxine's to the black tie dinner. 
And no one told me that I was not that in a bag of chips. <laughs> and I walked into Maxine's and jaws dropped. Like in the movie Gigi, mm. you know, when they come into the Maxine's and the jaws are dropping, when Ava Gabor comes through, the jaws dropped. All of society dropped. Betty Catru, all of them, their eyes were dropping. Georgina Brandolini and Valentino. And to this day, they remember it as a scandal. A cause scandal. And Anna Piaggi celebrated in Italian Vogue, had Karl Lagerfeld sketch me in a dressing gown, and it was celebrated in her reporting in Italian Vogue. But when I did it, it was considered, oh, this tall black man coming to Maxime's house, how dare he not wear the proper black tie? Little did they know it was from Karl Lagerfeld. So for me, it was like black tie. Right. It was custom made. It was from the finest closet in Paris. But, <laughs> but what, what gives you more joy to walk into the room looking amazing and everyone go, oh my God, he looks amazing. No, I don't want that. I don't want that moment. Or to say that thing that everyone goes, wow, that was really smart. No, I would say, wow, that was really fun. Wow, that's great. It's more important to have fun than to say, look at me, I'm stunning. I don't ever want that moment. Okay. That's not the moment I strive for. So what drives you? What drives me is people, as I said to you before, humanity. But you want respect? Humanity, respect, and I want to be uh, respected in my point of view and thought. And I usually got that in Paris. Now this seems. This is why you have not needed love, traded away love, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be over here getting respect. Yeah, they respected me. I must say in Paris, I had the best. <clears throat> and I can tell you, listen, I often look back and I forget how many great things I did. I mean, I went to the Rothschilds <laughs> for the weekend with my trunks. And those people had to take my trunks up the staircase of the Chateau Lafitte, just like the other suitcases. What's the hardest thing you had to overcome in your career? The overcome my weight gain. My weight gain, that was a big moment. Interventions to overcome my weight gain, and I never lost the weight. But it took me a long time to realize this is what it is, and I've got to settle as long as I'm healthy somewhat. Overcome, I, that was hard for me to overcome. I lost my grandmother, and I considered food an emotional crutch, because food is love, you know? Yeah. Black people. So that's the hardest thing. I think. When you lose someone that important to you, your grandmother, your mother, your father, your lover, and Carl lost his lover too in 89. I mean, Carl grieved for years over Jacques. You know, and Jacques de Bachelet was a great love of his life. I mean, he loved his mother too and his father. His mother died when I knew Carl, but I don't think he's, he took his mother's death as serious as he did Jacques. But his mother died at home in bed, you know? And, um, no, it wasn't, it, I don't get dressed up to create shockwaves. I get dressed up because I like what it feels like. Which is what? Comfortable. And no, elegant. But you're not, you could be comfortable in, you know. I'd be comfortable in just a pair of pajamas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're not comfortable. You look great. I'm not going to go down and go, get some crazy. Uh, you put in the, take the patterns together yeah. and the contrast and the that's this knowledge. And that. That's and, knowledge. But, that's... That, but what do you do that for? You, if you don't want everyone to go, Armour is, is a presentation. One expresses to the world one's personality through clothing. So my clothing is my armor. Which so says what about your personality? Which says what about your personality? Your armor. Uh, insecurity, I guess. I go to battle. You can't break through the armor. You can't break through the chinks because they know they can't break through the chinks. You don't seem insecure to me. Well, That's I, know, not what I, I know that I'm insecure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a lot of people are insecure. But I get more of a sense of flair from your outfits. I get a sense yeah, of... Yeah, but I'm insecure deeply, that deeply, he... deeply. But I will rise to the occasion. What are you and insecure about? I don't know. I just feel insecure. Imposter, I feel... imposter stuff? 
I guess I feel secure being lonely. I don't know what I'm insecure about. I'm insecure about my future and stuff like that. I still need a future. I need to have a future. And I'm insecure about, you know, paying the bills like everybody else is and everything else. I'm insecure because I think the world has tried to break me down without knowing that they were trying to break me down. They never gave me the full respect that I was due until this documentary. I must thank Kate Novak for doing that, for having a vision. When I see the way people respond to the documentary in Last Night in Schoenberg, the night before the Times Talk, Montclair, New Jersey, Toronto Film Festival, Lachman in Los Angeles, Elvis Mitchell, it's not to be believed. The people respond. And I sit backstage and listen to them laughing and then they stand up and clap when I come through. So this film is more about a black man in the segregated South who bounces out of the South into this world of high fashion and makes it and survives. I am in my gold-plated hell. I made my own gold-plated hell. And I will climb up and stay on top of my gold-plated hell as best I can until the day I die. What constitutes the gold-plated hell? The gold guilt, the guilt of being at Vogue, the guilt of being a fashion uh, icon, of being a fashion <clears throat> connoisseur, fashion knowledge, curating exhibits in museums, which I've done, uh, being an advisor to young people, all of that. <laughs> it doesn't come with a lot of security. And the gold-plated hell is I run around the world with a lot of people. I'm on a lot of private jets. I'm swinging up and down the, the private jet lanes and aisles. I've covered the Oscars for E.T. I've covered the Oscars, the Golden Globes for E.T. And nothing comes for me. I don't get anything like a reward for this, you know? I do these moments that are give to the world something that is a slice of entertainment, but I come away feeling empty. Thanks to Andre Leon Talley for several fantastic interviews. And thanks to you for listening. The show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, review, all that. And spread the word. Tell a friend. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and the Young Turks with help from William Jolly, Jason Wallace, Candid Nicole, and our photographer, Chuck Marcus. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.